Paul. Yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks, uh, Connie. And uh, thanks, uh, Marina, for getting us off to a great start. And in our courses uh, over the years, we, we often try to make sure we add um, at least one uh, talk that really digs into the underlying disease that we're dealing with. And I think Marina did a, a, a great uh, job uh, with that. I'm, I'm happy to uh, introduce the next, uh, the next talk. I think those of you that have been to other uh, large medical conferences often see a, a kind of best uh, letter, literature review uh, kind of talk, uh, what's happened in the, in the past year. And, and we're, we're gonna try that. Uh, and, and it gives me a chance to uh, mention that when, when Roger talks about the IAS to tell the audience, remind the audience that that organization has, it's a great organization, but it has nothing to do uh, legally or any other way with IAS USA, which is a completely separate one. Uh, but the IAS, as, as we know, the International AIDS Society uh, puts on a, uh, on a major meeting every, every year, but especially every other year. And, uh, and Roger is gonna give us an update on that and on uh, uh, recent literature. So it's gonna be a, a really interesting uh, summary of, of kind of where we are. Uh, Roger, uh, uh, and it's not Roger, it's Roger, is uh, uh, from Frank Francophone country, Cameroon, uh, not currently still in the, in the World Cup, uh, but, uh, but uh, Roger uh, uh, trained there and then uh, came to the U.S. and, and uh, worked at Tulane University, a university with a long history of work in global health and uh, uh, and, uh, and, and did work in parasitology there, uh, finished his training at Wright State in Dayton, Ohio, uh, and since then has worked in the, in the South, both at the uh, University of Alabama, Birmingham, where Mike Seg, uh, uh, who will join us later, uh, is a faculty member, and then more recently in Dallas at Southwestern, uh, where he's very active and, and also serves as the uh, section chief for infectious disease at the uh, at the VA, the North Texas uh, Healthcare System VA. Uh, he does a lot of uh, clinical trial work and clinical work. Uh, and uh, Roger is going to take us through uh, an update. In case you missed it, updates from recent publications and meetings. So, uh, Roger, welcome to the program and take it away. So, I apologize for this. And uh, this lecture uh, uh, titled in case you missed it, a subtitle could be the cure for the fear of missing out or the cure for FOMO. Uh, it allows us to run through the presentations and publications that have come across in the past a few weeks or months. And here are my disclosures. I have received research fundings from Aviv and Merck and have served on the advisory boards of the following companies. Now. At the end of the presentation, what I would like the attendees to be able to do is to describe the clinical presentations of uh, MPOX virus, uh, outline new findings and complications of antiretroviral therapy, describe new data management and prevention of co-infections and, and, and superinfections, and then discuss key new findings on COVID-19, uh, especially in the context of HIV. And here are the outlines. So we have the monkeypox or mpox as the rebranding calls for overview 
uh, non-AIDS complications of HIV, HIV therapy, and uh, we will no longer talk about the cure agenda. I think that we have a very comprehensive uh, presentation of that uh, earlier, and co-infections as well as uh, COVID-19. <clears throat> For MPOX, what is new? And I think that it's great to start here with what I think is a success story, because what is new is that we have now gone through and probably largely uh, passed a monkeypox outbreak in the US and the Western world. Now, these publications from last spring showed us that the clinical features of monkeypox that we saw were rather different from what we had expected from the literature prior to this outbreak. And how different? We looked at one uh, seminal paper in the New England Journal of Medicine of 528 uh, cases from 16 countries uh, across five continents. So basically, this is a very comprehensive overview. Fact number one, 40% of those who were in those cohorts were living with HIV. This is remarkably similar from other data that were put out by the CDC in the US. So almost half of people diagnosed with monkeypox or with MPOX uh, are living with HIV. Fact number two, the clinical presentation similar uh, among those with and without HIV. However, <clears throat> There is uh, also, I mean, the case of cases of complications occur. They're rare. They're probably more likely in those with uh, uh, immune suppression, including HIV. What was important also to note is that we have seen cases that are asymptomatic. This is an interesting analysis from a sexual health clinic in France. Because what they did in that clinic, as per the protocol, was an annual swab to routinely look at uh, sexually transmitted infections. In this particular analysis, those were negative uh, for chlamydia and GEC were tested for monkeypox. And they found 13 out of 200 who were actually positive uh, for MPOX. And what happens then is that we had two of those 13 who later presented with symptoms consistent with MPOX. So two things you can glean from this. One is that you may have uh, people who are asymptomatic and it possibly uh, they can transmit the infection. Number two uh, is that you could diagnose the disease in the pre-symptomatic phase as was the case for two of these 13 patients here. <clears throat> So again, uh, last fact about the MPOX uh, epidemic curve in the past uh, uh, year is that the presentation was slightly different from what we've seen uh, in the literature. Number one, most people had very few symptoms, uh, very few uh, lesions. Uh, the rash was not very widespread. It was very localized, uh, mostly in the genital tract. Fact two, Fever and other prodromal symptoms like chills and fadenopathy could occur before rash, as the name implies, prodrome, but it could also occur after rash or not at all. So not all people who develop rash will <coughs> have uh, prodromes of fever or other uh, systemic symptoms. Uh, then also has some respiratory symptoms that were uh, uh, detected in a number of people. 
in the management of people with HIV, you have two facts that uh, one is that <clears throat> people with advanced HIV are not virologically suppressed with antiviral therapy, maybe at an increased risk for severe disease as per the CDC Health Alert Network a couple of months ago. <clears throat> the second one being that post-exposure prophylaxis and antiviral uh, treatments are available for uh, those uh, with MPOX or exposed to MPOX. Decovirimat, which has been used uh, significantly, has resulted in reduction in levels of some HIV medications, including NNRTI. But the clinical relevance of this uh, was uh, probably, is probably limited. Finally, vaccinations uh, with uh, Gineos uh, 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 is considered safe for people with HIV. Uh, ACAM 2000 should not be given, it's a live uh, virus. So that is uh, what we've seen during the MPOX epidemic. Now, apart from some uh, preclinical data, laboratory data that had questioned whether the current vaccines were efficacious, the CDC analysis showed that unvaccinated people had 14 times the risk of MPOX disease compared to those who were vaccinated. And that is, an, is a significant clinical effectiveness, probably owing to that, as well as owing to a significant uh, behavioral change, because another CDC analysis found that the risk, the, the, the likelihood of uh, multiple sexual partners, sexual partner, uh, partners uh, found in uh, dating apps or anonymous partners decreased by a half, which is significant. So a combination of all these, a, 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 an efficacious vaccine, behavioral change led to the fact that the number of infections peaked in the early August are now uh, very, very uh, uh, few. Uh, which is actually jeopardizing one of the seminal uh, studies to look at the efficacy of, uh, uh, of uh, tecovirumab uh, because enrollment has now been uh, significantly uh, reduced. So now let's look at all the sexually transmitted infections. We have probably uh, not emphasized enough that in the previous analysis for MPOX, almost a 30% of people diagnosed with MPOX were diagnosed with a concomitant sexually transmitted infection. So it's extremely important to look for sexually transmitted infections when you diagnose MPOX. So now we let's look at HIV and who is getting HIV in the US today as a moment of uh, a clinical context. We have 41% Blacks and African-Americans, 28% are Hispanics and Latinos. So it stands to reason that if you're going to stem the epidemic, you wanna prevent it or uh, as the ending the HIV epidemic agenda uh, requ uh, requires, you have to focus on these populations, but we're not doing a good job of it. The PrEP to need ratio is the number of PrEP users divided by the number, <clears throat> the number of, uh, uh, people who are uh, 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 newly diagnosed in a given year. And that PrEP to need ratio serves as a measurement of how PrEP use compares to the need for PrEP in a population. And this has been compared by regions. Uh, you see here four different uh, US regions, the Midwest, the Northeast, the West, and the South, showing you that the PrEP to need ratio has significantly increased, but mostly in the Northeast, are mostly among white. Where is the new HIV infections? Mostly in the South, 
and mostly among non-whites. So the prep to need ratio gap increased over time in all regions. Uh, and so the racial gap continues to widen and we need to address the epidemic where it's occurring the most. Now, another moment of context is the unmet need uh, in, uh, in uh, <clears throat> sexually transmitted infections uh, prevention. Now, this is the incidence of uh, sexually transmitted infections in PrEP recipients. Now, you see here that <clears throat> in this particular analysis of 290 MSM initiating PrEP, 43% <clears throat> sorry, were screened per guidelines at PrEP initiation and 25% uh, <clears throat> had at least one STI. So this does two things. First, it tells us that <clears throat> it's really important to screen for STI prior to the initiation of PrEP and during PrEP. Why is that important? It's because we could now probably do something about those sexually transmitted infections. This is a study of men who access with men and transgender women with HIV on PrEP who had STIs in the past year. Now, randomize uh, two to one to receive 200 milligrams of doxycycline within 72 hours of a condomless sex or no doxycycline uh, with STI treatment at enrollment, and then quarterly and when symptomatic. So <clears throat> the quarterly STI incidence is provided in the table below by HIV status. You see that both among HIV uninfected who were on PrEP, and among those living with HIV, the rates of uh, uh, the, the, the number, sorry, of, of STIs were significant. So primary STI endpoints uh, were uh, significant in those in the control arm, about, uh, about 30% uh, in uh, those on PrEP and about 28% in those uh, with HIV. However, those rates were significantly reduced by doxycycline post-exposure prophylaxis. In the tables on the right, you see that the risk reduction of sexual transmitted infection incidence per quarter was less than 40%, uh, so reduced by <clears throat> more than 60% with doxycycline. And this held true with, uh, for gonorrhea uh, uh, and for chlamydia, even if the uh, the, the, the reduction of syphilis was not statistically significant, you see that the, uh, uh, the rate uh, reduction was uh, commensurate with that of the other infections, so just because the, infect, the syphilis infections were not enough in numbers uh, to reach statistically significant, statistical significance. So another infection that we deal with regularly in people with HIV is uh, hepatitis B. Uh, Co-infection with hepatitis B is a lot more common in Asia, East Asia, such as Asia, as well as in Africa. That's why this study was done in East Asia. And what it did is they looked at adults with HIV and hepatitis B co-infection who were treatment naive to both infections and had a significant uh, viremia for both. For HIV, it was uh, 500 or more copies per ml. For hepatitis D, uh, was 2,000 international units per milliliter or more. And the HIV genotypic sensitivity uh, uh, was uh, looked at for FTC and uh, TFV, i.e. the uh, active moiety of uh, TDF and TAF. So what they did is they put <clears throat> some of these uh, participants were randomized to receive Bictegravir FTC-TAF and the other ones 
to dolutegravir plus FTC-TDF. What we see in the figures on the right was the top one is not surprising because we had uh, uh, the two uh, regimens were non-inferior in reduction of uh, HIV viral load and as 95% and 91% respectively had HIV RNA fewer than 50 copies per ml. But the figure on the bottom was the surprise because we now had <clears throat> statistically significant significantly uh, greater uh, rates of reduction of HBV DNA in those who received uh, Bictegravir FTC-TAF in blue compared to those who received Dolutegravir plus FTC-TDF in green. And so that is important. If I take you back to the table on the left at the bottom, you will see that there are two other endpoints that were different. One was a rate of ALT normalization in those who had abnormal ALT at baseline was 73% uh, with Bictegravir FTC-TAF and 55% uh, with uh, Dolutegravir plus FTC-TDF. Now, if these data were confirmed by others, and I will say this type of data, you really want them to be confirmed by others, then it will be significant because we will have uh, reasons for preferring uh, FTC-TAF to FTC-TDF in those who are co-infected with HIV and hepatitis B. There was, uh, however, for context, I'll tell you that when those two regimens, uh, FTC-TDF and FTC-TAF, were tried in people were HIV, uh, HBV mono-infected, they, uh, they, they had similar uh, rates of virologic success. Uh, however, uh, rates of ALT normalizations were higher in FTC-TAF in those studies. And that could, uh, again, this data had to be confirmed by others, but could mean that uh, it's possible that uh, TAF had a better uh, penetration in the liver as some uh, studies have shown uh, several years ago. Now, the low hanging fruit in my view uh, is uh, suppressing varemia in people with HIV. We do that uh, as you see in the, uh, even in the alliance that they are presented earlier, 95 plus percent of people are, are, are from the get-go. What has been completely difficult is decreasing the number of comorbidities that uh, people living with HIV have. You can see here that that rate of comorbidities continue to increase uh, over time. And we're talking about cardiovascular diseases, uh, diabetes, chronic kidney disease, osteoporosis, and non-AIDS malignancies. More importantly is that the survival gap between people living with HIV and the general population is largely driven by these comorbidities. That gap has narrowed since the advent of highly active antiretroviral therapy in, 19, in the mid-90s, as in the gray line, but as is still just below 10 years. And that difference, that gap is largely driven by comorbidities. So how, how can we address those comorbidities? We need to understand that there could be background risk in the people living with HIV because they had individual societal or, or behavioral factors that led them to higher risk of those. It could be the viruses. As uh, <clears throat> Dr. Rassi presented earlier, even in people who are suppressed by arrhythmia, we do have a reservoir in some of them are defective viruses, but we don't know 
whether those are still driving the inflammation and immune activation that people live in HIV have. But again, uh, uh, worrisome that treatments may, may contribute to those. So now let's look at the viruses. This is a systematic review of 12 studies looking at five cohorts uh, and show that four of these five cohort studies show that spontaneously controlling virus did not uh, decrease uh, your risk of non-HD-panic illness. So they, they have similar risk of non-HD-panic illness as people in HIV on ART, specifically cardiovascular disease and others. Now, cross-sectional imaging studies also show a higher prevalence of subclinical cardiovascular disease in these spontaneous controllers. So we need to continue to understand how to limit this. More interestingly is that in this analysis of the Casa Permanente and the partners, uh, we see that from 2005 to 2009, the rates of a new uh, incident acute myocardial infections between people living with HIV and the general population were not significantly different. We thought we had, uh, had a success story here. Not so between 2010 and 2017, where the gap appears to be widening. And it's uh, very baffling to understand why that gap could be widening just now when we think that we have antiretrovirals that are more metabolically friendly, or so, so, so to speak. Now, it, it could be because the virus, like I said, itself is still inducing immune activations. And if one virus is bad, two viruses are much worse because cardiovascular disease in those who are co-infected with hepatitis C is greater. In this particular analysis, there was a greater increase in type one MI uh, with age in co-infected people outpacing the mono-infected people. So without HIV uh, adjusted hazard ratio per 10 year increase in age was 1.3, while with hepatitis C co-infection, that hazard ratio was 1.85, significantly higher. But now we just had uh, the ISUSA guidelines uh, this week uh, released uh, on, uh, should I point out, on the World AIDS Day, December 1st, 2022, as you see in the bottom, uh, on the top left. And in those recommendations, which I strongly encourage you to look at, INSTI-based regimens are recommended for most people with HIV. So it's normal that this class of drugs now is having significant scrutiny because we are really counting on it. Now, that's why the studies like the RESPOND uh, created some uh, uh, trepidation. Now, what this study in an international collaboration of 17 cohorts showed that the composite endpoint of MI, stroke and invasive cardiovascular procedure adjudicated events was uh, greater in those initiated INSTI within the six months of initiation. And, and uh, so INSTI exposure associated with 2.5-fold greater incidence of cardiovascular disease within the first six months of exposure compared to no exposure. Now, again, I, I wish you said data like this will have to be confirmed. But if you think you've seen this movie before, you'll have about 13 or 14 years ago with the DAD cohort showing that initiation of a backup here was actually an increased risk of acute myocardial infarction um, uh, 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 within, again, months of initiation. Now, if these data hold true, that would probably suggest that whatever risk you had, maybe you already had built a plaque 
initiation of some drugs might destabilize that plaque and cause you uh, acute myocardial infarction. It doesn't mean that you build the plaque in six months. So we will see if this type of data will be confirmed. But we already also have some suggestions that other cardiometabolic complications might be greater with exposure to TAF and instis like here, what is now being termed metabolic associated fatty liver disease in this particular uh, cohort. <clears throat> but again, for context, not all cohorts have seen the same. Uh, this is uh, uh, on the left, uh, the advanced, uh, the reprieve, sorry, uh, which is a gift that will, a gift that will keep giving. And uh, looking at reprieve, which is, uh, allows us to look at whether initiation of statins, pitavastatin in this instance, will reduce events in people living with HIV who would not have qualified for those statins by the ACSCVD score. We look at here that obesity was greater, but metabolic syndrome was not greater among our ST users. However, again, at the age 2022, we had some an, an analysis that suggested a higher risk of uh, uh, AMI and uh, uh, congestive heart disease, but not metabolic syndrome in people uh, initiating ST. So this is, of course, something that is continuing to evolve, and I hope we get some clarity on all that soon. Now, what we've seen here is this slide reminds me to say that while we've seen INSTI and TAF being associated with uh, increased weight gain in many analyses, and that we also seeing some analysis suggesting increased risk of uh, cardiometabolic complications. It doesn't necessarily mean that those cardiometabolic complications are a consequence of the weight increase from these drugs. It could be a completely different mechanism. Now we see here that change in BMI and outcomes in this uh, Eurocida study uh, increase uh, of uh, one kilogram or meter for per meter square or more increases your risk of diabetes, uh, but not of cardiovascular disease, while a decrease uh, increase your risk of all-cause mortality. So weight loss increases all-cause mortality and weight gain, diabetes, but not cardiovascular disease. And this is uh, uh, published last week. Now, our management of treatment experienced uh, patients, uh, not heavily, but uh, uh, first, second failure, is actually mostly uh, driven by data we gleaned from resource-limited settings. And these are four uh, uh, trials that have actually informed us a lot. Before we had doning uh, with all the uh, drugs like Darunavir, uh, uh, sorry, like uh, um, um, Lopinavir, um, uh, and Atazavir, but now we do have Nadia, which is uh, study, uh, lo looking at newer drugs like uh, boosted Arunavir and Dolitegravir. What these studies suggest to us uh, uh, in this meta-analysis presented in Glasgow uh, last month was that we did have a non-inferior uh, 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 <clears throat> uh, uh, outcomes in virologic suppression between the instis and staying on uh, on and boosted uh, protease inhibitor uh, in general but the instis were really superior uh, in suppressing viremia for those who were viremic at baseline after the NNRTI experience so these are data that of course we extrapolate them uh, to the US with some caveats but it's important now Heavily treatment experienced patients, maybe 1% of our patient population in a clinic like this data suggests, 
but they may be 50% of our headaches. And there are two buckets, you know, highly adherent, but uh, non-suppressive regimen, and those who are poorly adherent uh, who have some tolerability or other challenges. And we know that if there were, since we're relying a lot on instis, uh, there is a caution now that uh, <clears throat> we, we should uh, uh, exercise because uh, uh, partial sensitivity to ratagravir at baseline, uh, especially with prior exposure to ratagravir, which is why we should use it at BID. But addition of secondary mutation uh, at T97A can result in rapid treatment failure in individuals uh, uh, with instant mutations. So this is what this group at the NIH has uh, presented in the case report, just as a cautionary tale, uh, emergence of T97A containing HIV from a large replicating uh, population, and this is spread by uh, recombination. So just a caution that num number one, judicious use of, uh, of uh, these INSTI in people who um, um, uh, INSTI experience, like I uh, have experienced uh, all the INSTIs like Rategravir and uh, being uh, aware of this. Because uh, after this, uh, options are limited. This is what we had, you know, we, with the use of new drugs like Ibalizumab for stem severe. And like I said earlier, uh, INSTIs like Dolitegravir, BID, and the use of uh, existing drugs that may have residual activities. So until now, but we may soon have yet another option, which is uh, Lena Kapavir presented in Glasgow uh, last month, uh, which uh, showed uh, in the week uh, 52 efficacy uh, here by number of fully active agents in the optimized background. You see that even with zero uh, fully active agents in optimized background, there was a two-third uh, uh, suppression to a volume of less than 50 copies. Uh, importantly, there was no click, uh, no, uh, <clears throat> uh, relevant difference as seen among subgroups who are considered most difficult to treat, like a high uh, varimia, low CD4 count, and others. So options will come. I will finish this with uh, uh, COVID. Uh, so in hospital mortality uh, in people with HIV and COVID, uh, they, number one is that those with HIV have a higher proportion of the comorbidities that we know associated with COVID uh, mortality. Um, and, and number two is that those comorbidities actually increase uh, uh, COVID death in people with HIV. Uh, put here, uh, you see here, chronic kidney disease and diabetes, as well as HIV parameters. So people with uh, low varemia, uh, uh, high varemia and, and uh, low CD4 count. So, and then uh, uh, COVID again, what we've seen in the past month uh, uh, or two is alarming because not we're used to seeing one variant or so variant completely displacing another one, uh, uh, Delta and the Omicron, but now we're seeing is a pretty much a swarm of surveillance. So there's a convergent mutation where you can see here, they all stumble upon the same mutations and we have now many surveillance. I want you to focus now on BQ1 and BQ1.1, which are now res uh, uh, respectively 30, uh, uh, each one is now about 30% of circulating variant because those are significantly uh, associated with uh, 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 
uh, escape from our preventive and therapeutic options. As you can see here, that increased, uh, uh, and then XBB is rising, it's probably uh, two or 3% now, but we'll soon join BQ1 and BQ1.1 in showing strong resistance to current uh, uh, SARS-CoV monotonal antibody for prevention, AVGL, uh, 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 and then for treatment. When uh, this again came out this week, uh, uh, by this group at the CDC. I like this study because it drives home the point that the, uh, the efficacy of bivalent, uh, bivalent vaccines in preventing symptomatic SARS-CoV-2 infection, and it protects from the waning of uh, 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 protection of the monovalent vaccines. And it was equally effective in the table in the bottom right, regardless of the number of doses of the monovalent vaccine that you have gotten before that uh, uh, bivalent dosing. So important is one of our most uh, uh, needed uh, modality now. So, and this one just to reiterate the fact that BQ1, BQ1.1 and XBB are very resistant to all of uh, uh, um, um, uh, monoclonal antibody options now. And uh, while we still might be uh, available, uh, avail ourselves of uh, the uh, remdesivir, nilmatravir, and uh, mondipiravir. And this is what led to just uh, last week a, an announcement for the ACA that, that we no longer authorize uh, beptilovimab for the treatment of, uh, of uh, COVID 19. Uh, this study in Japan that I will finish with in the next uh, two minutes. Uh, it's very important because uh, the, that uh, cohort has been used to showing us data, and this is uh, uh, live virus data that shows that while all these uh, monoclonal antibodies that we have here, and I will show you that in this uh, column, the, the uh, one column is betelovimab, so there's really no efficacy of uh, betelovimab against uh, BQ1.1 and XBB. And then on the bottom, uh, on the far right, is texagevimab uh, 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 and kilgavimab in prevention, uh, also completely ineffective. However, because these lineages, uh, uh, BQ1.1 and XBP, actually also do have mutations uh, in the RNA-dependent uh, 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 RNA polymerase that that remdesivir uh, uh, blocks, as well as the MPRO, the essential uh, uh, protease that, that nimetravir blocks, it was important to test that these drugs will still work on them, and they do. So we probably will be relying more heavily on those drugs. And so uh, betelovimab is no longer uh, uh, going to be used, and tixavivimab, uh, uh, kilgavimab will be used, but with caveats that it may not work. So I will now uh, uh, be open to questions. I apologize for the snafu at the beginning of the talk. Hello, Roger. Thank you very much. <clears throat> and uh, yeah, you're you're forgiven for the snafu at the beginning of the talk. <clears throat> um, th there are a number of questions. I, I I had wanted to start with just just the observation that it's uh, that the monoclonals for for COVID. Um, are obviously difficult to produce, um, and it seems as though by the time uh, we get them, uh, they, they've lost a lot of their activity because the virus is still evolving so very rapidly and uh, a, a challenge, as, as you point out. But just a reminder to the audience that <clears throat> it's really important, I think, for all of us as providers to model 
uh, safe behavior. And for sure, uh, we should be getting our bivalent uh, boosters, uh, especially those of us that are uh, that are over 60 or 65, and we should be talking about that with our patients. The rate of, of uptake is still uh, far lower than it should be, considering that we still have this pandemic going on. It's it's absolutely not over. So um, that's a little editorial aside, but uh, a number of a number of questions, Roger. Um, um, uh, one is just uh, tell us a little bit more about the doxy prep and. Uh, uh, why it's uh, why why do you think it's working in gonorrhea? And tell us a little bit more about its uh, effect on on syphilis. Yeah, so this is uh, doxypep post exposure prophylaxis. Probably doxypep yeah, yeah. work also. I don't know, but yeah. um, and so <laughs> and and uh, number one, there was a concern. Uh, the concern um, was the growing um, uh, resistance in GC uh, for, for doxycycline, and that would just be uh, selecting for a uh, resistant uh, strain. And this is a story that a story that we need to continue to, to monitor, even as the, it was a, a, a small proportion of those who actually got uh, uh, GC in that uh, doxy. Uh, PEP, sorry, uh, uh, pro, uh, I think got uh, had uh, resistance strains. Now, why would it would it work? I think that um, it's uh, it's uh, likely that we we will um, uh, not need uh, the full therapeutic dose that we we use for uh, established infections to to prevent uh, in uh, uh, infection or abort. I guess this is. Uh, 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 probably aborting infections that uh, are brewing uh, after an encounter. So um, uh, I would love to see a lot more data uh, in that sphere to, to see. Good. A uh, question about um, uh, renal dosing uh, with the HIV, HBV uh, co-infection uh, with Victarvi. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about that, especially with the TAF uh, dosing uh, questions with renal failure or renal insufficiency? Yeah, so I mean, I think that the 30 milligrams um, um, uh, uh, of creatinine clearance uh, threshold that is for TAF should apply with, with or without uh, uh, co-infection with hepatitis B. However, there are a small, um, there's a small amount of data suggesting safety uh, beyond, uh, below that threshold. And again, uh, this is uh, uh, something that, 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 that should be important whether you, or not you have uh, hepatitis uh, B uh, co-infection. What I think is important in the alliance data uh, is uh, also to look at the liver delivery of uh, TAF. Actually, that led me to go back to the data because we know that TAF has a higher intracellular uh, um, level in the lymphocytes, but I was thinking this is the liver has to be different. And indeed, in 2015, there was data showing that uh, the tenofovir diphosphate, the actimoidy, uh, was higher within hepatocytes uh, in, of dogs that were given TAF than given TDF. Now, that could be great because uh, that may explain this uh, uh, higher efficacy here, but that could also be something to watch for as to now getting to understand the rise in metabolic associated fatty liver disease and other things, but too early to tell. So uh, great. Um, and a question um, we've been hearing obviously about weight gain and instes for a long time now, but I talk, talk a little bit more. The, the question is, 
Um, do we understand that there's a relationship between instant weight gain and diabetes, steatosis, but not cardiovascular disease? Tell us, tell us about, about that. The, the audience found that surprising. Yes, thank you. I, I think I should be, um, um, uh, if you frustrated uh, uh, in the audience, if you frustrated about uh, lack of progress in understanding this weight gain issue, uh, count me among uh, among you because, <laughs> and and what we have seen now for five, uh, 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 I mean, for, for four plus years is uh, that we have documented, uh, especially in trials like ADVANCE, that the, the, the weight gain with, uh, and EST, especially when used in conjunction, was greater. Now, there has been some concern that maybe it's uh, uh, also because uh, TDF, which has largely uh, been replaced by TAF, was associated with weight loss, as well as NNRTI, it's like a associated weight loss. The, that notwithstanding, the, the, uh, we now have, we're living in an obesogenic epidemic, and it's affecting the same people or where the HIV epidemic is. Uh, uh, and, and so that conjunction, so now we need to figure out if that weight gain is what is driving the nascent, uh, the, the, the other kind of metabolic risk. I think that we don't know that. We have uh, presented some studies looking at a higher uh, rate of uh, um, a metabolic uh, uh, syndrome uh, with, with, with uh, instances, others like reprieve that did not show it. And also the increased risk of cardiovascular disease that we've seen with initiation on INSTI in the uh, European cohort by NASGAR occurs too early for it to be driven by the traditional risk factors. So we need to dissociate probably the two and, and, and dig in deeper. So stay, stay tuned. And I think your point about the fact that uh, bad outcomes of uh, decreased mortality uh, or increased mortality really is now being driven by uh, secondary uh, consequences is really an important uh, observation and something that we should really be, uh, be addressing. Uh, a, a quick question about MPOX. Um, starting MPOX, uh, uh, starting ARV therapy uh, with a new diagnosis, low CD4 counts. Uh, any thoughts about iris in that situation? Um, that's a good question that I don't know that there is enough data on that. Um, the concerns that I personally have with iris uh, is uh, infections in the central nervous system. Um, and otherwise, it's really um, uh, uh, something that we should not um, uh, be, be very concerned about. Now, the, it's now known that, you know, uh, safe cryptococcal meningitis, we probably should be starting antiretroviral therapy as soon as uh, we can in people who are diagnosed with HIV in the context of an ongoing opportunistic infection. And I don't think that uh, uh, MPOX uh, should not be an exception. Great. And uh, there are a number of other questions. Uh, we're we're uh, running low on time, but just uh, quickly uh, a question about uh, lenacapavir. And, and uh, what, tell us a little bit more about it. What drug class does it belong to and any other thoughts? Yeah, so capsid inhibitor, now this is a class that we haven't seen before. And, um, and it's uh, likely to... Uh, be uh, uh, something that can be used uh, uh, because of its very long half-life. 
And uh, in uh, very infrequent administrations, we're talking uh, parenteral probably. Uh, uh, and, such. and then so important that it's been studied in the study I presented, uh, Capella, and uh, in the heavily treatment experience, also been studied in treatment and naive in a smaller study. So uh, in both instances, it's been very uh, promising. So what I imagine will come next is uh, the, op the, the optimal pairing. Now, based on the uh, long half-life, the, the ideal pair, uh, pairing for uh, dose parity will be long-acting uh, antiretroviral. Uh, there is not a single study I know of now of new regimens that have more than two drugs. So, uh, and, and so we are probably are going to see that as well pretty soon. Well, maybe uh, at our next uh, Chicago update next year, you can uh, you can update us on on that as well. Thank you very much for uh, uh, for this uh, really a nice summary of a lot of a lot of data. But it's now time to uh, turn the program back to uh, to my co-moderator Constance Benson. Thank you so very much.